supporting human conditions Not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians Cause they own by special interest groups that fund their campaign That's why you hear the same old things they claim Welcome to the Project Censored Radio Show I am Eleanor Goldfield And this week we are diving into Pride I'd say as a queer person that every month is Pride But you know, we, we get a month <laughs> to celebrate And so on... On this occasion, I would like to dig into some of the misconceptions about pride, the corporatization of pride, the radical roots of pride from this past century and indeed beyond, and also discuss a lot of the intersections with pride that are glossed over and indeed whitewashed uh, in the corporate celebration of pride. Later in the show, we will be joined by Jen Deerenwater, who is a bisexual, two-spirit, multiply disabled citizen of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, and an award-winning journalist and organizer. And she will be joining us to discuss as well the corporatization of pride and the power of pride outside of those confines and the radical roots. So we've got all this and more coming up right after this on the Project Censored radio show. We're actually going to start off with some Project Censored stories uh, specific to the book State of the Free Press 2022. You can find this on the website, projectcensored.org. It's a powerful book, and I am I'm pulling right now from number 21. You can find also the project, some of the Project Censored essays and stories that we cover in the book on our website as well, projectcensored.org. So again, if you'd like to read along, this is number 21. And uh, this is conservative Christian groups who spend globally to promote anti-LGBTQ campaigns. And this is this probably comes as not that big of a surprise to folks, right? Uh, this is, you know, these are the folks that are still trying to ensure that uh, that that the world is heteronormative, very white, very masculine, and very capitalist and colonialist and Christian. So (laughs) it probably doesn't come as a surprise, but uh, this is a report by the UK-based political website Open Democracy, which exposes, quote, the depth of cash flowing from American Christian anti-LGBTQ and anti-abortion groups into dangerous campaigns against reproductive rights and queer rights across the globe, end quote. And this is also something that shows uh, an intersection uh, in in pride, the that pride is also linked to reproductive rights and the ability for people to make decisions about their own bodies. Of course, if you were with us uh, a few weeks ago, then you heard our our reproductive rights show. If not, you can go back and listen to that at projectcensored.org. And this is uh, this is something that is often glossed over in both in both camps, so to speak, and really shows the importance and the power of connecting these issues because they're being connected by those who are trying to ensure that we don't have these rights, that we don't have queer liberation, that we don't have reproductive justice. So it's important that we connect these issues in our movements. And this uh, this this report goes on to show that these anti LGBTQ groups have been pushing millions 
millions of dollars into not just prejudice, but actual persecution. So this shows that uh, the, the, the U.S. Christian right, such as Focus on the Family, has spent millions to promote prejudice against and persecution of LGBTQ people in Latin America, Asia, the Middle East, Africa, and Europe. And alas, here we have another intersection. I feel like I should rename myself Intersectional Eleanor because I feel like I talk about it so often. Colonialism, right? The idea that the United States empire owns these areas and has a a, a God-given right to promote and force their perspectives onto these areas of the world. I mean, the Monroe Doctrine, uh, specifically looking at Latin America, literally thinks of Latin America and South America as our backyard, as the U.S.'s backyard. And this is, of course, something that that moves beyond just that area of the world, but into Africa, as we see with the, the new scramble for Africa via AFRICOM and the corporate push to take over parts of Africa for the sake of minerals and um, uh, precious metals, uh, fossil fuels, and, 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 and such. So, Again, the intersections here of pride, of reproductive rights, and of colonialism are really unmistakable. And Peter Tatchell, a well-known British gay activist, wrote to Gay City News describing this push as, quote, Christian imperialism, menacing the well-being and human rights of millions of LGBTQ people. And this is another thing that I think is really important that we connect in terms of imperialism to how a lot of U.S. imperialist entities will, quote-unquote, celebrate pride. This is something that our guest, Jen Deerenwater, will also cover in our conversation later, but that you have weapons manufacturers and you have, you know, the the, the naming of a Navy uh, ship after Harvey Milk. And these kind of these kind of moves that suggest that you can wrap a gay pride flag around a bomb and therefore make it just and woke and hip. And of course, that's not true. And, you know, the simple fact that, for instance, the United States is closely allied with Saudi Arabia, who executes people for being gay and and speaking out against gay persecution and queer persecution. These are aspects that are mutually exclusive, right? You cannot be for U.S. empire and for queer liberation. You cannot be for the status quo of oppression of queer folks, both in the United States and, of course, uh, beyond, and also be for the U.S. empire. These are mutually exclusive aspects. So that is uh, that, again, I'm pulling this story from the State of the Free Press book. That is the book that Project Censored puts out every year, and you can find you can find the the some of the stories that I'm pulling from but you can also find and get the book over at projectcensored.org and moving on to another uh, another story that I'm pulling from there that also highlights the intersections this is number 10 activists call out legacy of racism and sexism enforced sterilization and this is something that is also going to be highlighted by our guests later on. But uh, during the 20th century, at least 60,000 Americans in some 32 states were sterilized without their consent. And the, the, the story goes on to highlight a few experiences of those who had uh, been forcibly sterilized. 
And this continues today. And I think that you know, people oftentimes think about these things like, oh, that happened way back when, when things were dark in the U.S. and and uh, that's not something we do anymore. But uh, as as noted in this in this story, Levy uh, Uyeda's Yes Magazine artist article also reported on more recent allegations of forced sterilization sanctioned by U.S. officials, including charges that between October and December of 2019, an immigration detention center in Georgia, quote, had forcibly sterilized at least five women in the custody of Immigration and Customs Enforcement, a.k.a. ICE. So this is something that continues to happen specifically to migrants uh, in this case. And again, this is an intersection that is not discussed, uh, because if we look at the history, also the the present of forced sterilization in the United States, uh, then we also see that the that those who were primarily targeted by this were people that were deemed, you know, undesirables, people who were disabled Black and, and and now we see Latinx folks uh, primarily that you know the migrants coming into this country, and then we look if we look at the history of Pride, for instance, you know the 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 people who really spearheaded the Pride movement uh, around and after Stonewall, such as Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, Black and Latinx folks who were also making the intersections between queer liberation. And black liberation, people of color liberation, Latinx liberation, and you can't separate these, right? These are aspects that cover the entire identities of people. And it's very important to highlight that these are inseparable, and that uh, that that when you're fighting for queer liberation, then you are also fighting necessarily for the liberation of these folks. And I'm reminded here of uh, an Audrey Lord quote: "I find I am constantly being encouraged to pluck out some one aspect of myself and present this as the meaningful who, eclipsing or denying the other parts of self. Difference must be not merely tolerated, but seen as a fund of necessary." polarities between which our creativity can spark like a dialectic. Only then does the necessity for interdependency become unthreatening. And I really, really love that quote, because it really shows that First of all, we can't actually ever gain liberation if we continue to silo ourselves in these specific movements. Hey, I'm I'm just doing queer liberation. I'm just doing black liberation or indigenous rights or what have you. There are intersections that we as whole people represent and we cannot tease these out. We cannot pluck out one aspect of ourselves and make that the beacon unto which our our, our efforts should be guided. And also highlighting the, 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 the aspect of interdependency and this idea that we are interdependent upon one one another and uh, i'm also reminded of a of a, a, a dear friend of mine who has since uh, passed on kilu niasha who said i really wish we could do this without white folks but we can't and highlighting the uh, the fact that racism is not a black problem it's a white problem and therefore there has to be a solution that involves white people and people who are not black and Therefore, also with pride, uh, you know, we need to include the efforts and the power and the passion of people who don't identify as queer, Uh, just like I am queer, but I am not black or Latinx. And I have a role 
in pushing for the liberation of those folks who are not white. And this is really, uh, you know, I think Pride is a powerful time to highlight this because there are so many people that are included in Pride, right? The, the letters that we include continue to grow necessarily as we recognize more people as part of this fold. I mean, it sounds a little bit cliche, I guess, but we are a rainbow. <laughs> and inside of this rainbow, there's so much humanity and there's so many intersections. So I feel that pride is really a perfect time to highlight that. Uh, and again, so this is why I, I've chosen to also highlight the, the, the that, that history of sterilization and how that is affecting people still today here in this country and how that aligns with, you know, my previous, my previous story that I, that I uh, shared about these conservative Christian groups that are spending globally to, uh, to persecute LGBTQ folks and that reproductive rights, anti-racism, pride, these are inextricably linked. There's so much organizing to be done. And part of that comes in showing these intersections and showing where we can unite in these these places where we where our identities connect uh, and where our struggles connect, which are manifold. I mean, there's there are as many as there are people. That's that's how many intersections there are to highlight. Uh, and again, this speaks to pride, just like I said, because pride has historically and still today been spearheaded and really pushed along. This issue of queer liberation has been pushed along predominantly by non-white folks. You're listening to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. This is Eleanor Goldfield. We'll continue our program after this brief musical break. So again, if you'd like to check out these stories that I just shared with you, then you can go to projectcensor.org and check that out. Uh, you can also get the book there. So moving on to the, the final point that I'd like to make before we, we shift to our guest, and that is highlighting the radical history of this Pride Month that we celebrate in the United States, and indeed worldwide it's kind of become june has become pride month and and some folks might be wondering why is it june <laughs> besides the fact that it's lovely weather in a lot of places a lot of what we talk about in terms of pride in the united states is connected to an instance a moment in time and i think this is both awesome and radical and problematic because kind of like with the rosa parks aspect it makes people think that oh this was that one moment this was that one person and that one moment that kicked everything off and then everything changed and all we have to do is find that one moment and of course with with regards to rosa parks this was a you know she was part of a movement she was part of an organization this was something that people have been doing for quite some time and we can never know in terms of 
the the actors in these moments can never know if that's going to be that one tipping point. But these are often purposefully as well. Sometimes not on purpose, but these are oftentimes plucked out of of a river of actions and movements and uh, and struggles to suggest that oh it's just this one thing and it's just this one person and we don't need to organize for very long and we don't need to join forces we can just be this one person who decides one day to do one thing and that really that really diminishes the reality and the power behind organized movements and you know community organizing and pushing for something together and creating tactics around a, a certain struggle or a certain uh, a, a certain push so with pride it's important to understand that there there has been the struggle for queer liberation as long as there has been queer folks which is forever and <laughs> And that what we call Stonewall is absolutely a moment when things did escalate in a very loud way, but it is by no means the start of Pride. And so when people say, this is when Pride started, no, that's not when Pride started. It's not when the fight for queer liberation started. It's when it's, it's the, the moment that we choose as kind of an anniversary for this struggle. But it's certainly not the, the 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 first moment, and so basically, this was back in 1969, and Stonewall Inn was a place. It was a safe space for queer folks, and what this means in particular in those days was that the police would very frequently raid places that they thought or they knew queer folks would be and arrest them for indecency. I'm not kidding. This was, you know, people think, oh, New York, it was always so crazy and so, you know, free and everything. No, this was 1969. So it's really not that long ago. And police would frequently raid these places and arrest folks for not wearing the clothes that, you know, that, that, that their assigned genders suggest that they need to wear, those kind of things. And this was something that had been ongoing for quite some time. And this one night in June in 1969, police raided the Stonewall Inn and were abusing folks they were arresting folks and there's a lot of stories as to what happened next and this person screamed this and this person threw a brick i'm not going to get into that morass of the who's and the what's and the the when's but ultimately this act of violence by the NYPD by the police was a tipping point and it kicked off several nights of pushback from the queer community and their accomplices and their allies to basically say, we're not going to take this anymore. This moment crested the fight for queer liberation and really highlighted the oppression that queer folks, particularly non-white queer folks, experienced vis-a-vis the state, you know, the, the, the police. And it was, of course, it wasn't just in New York, but this is just that one, that one moment that's highlighted here. So, That's why it's in June. That's why we talk about Stonewall. That's why people say the first Pride was a riot. And that is why (laughs) it is so important to talk about not just the radical history of Pride, the radical reality, but also talk about why it's important that 
police not be a part of these movements. And I know that some listeners listening to this might disagree with me on this, but the state, visa, like the state's arm of violence is domestically the police. Internationally, it's military. But domestically, it's the police. And police do not make communities safer. Police are there to uplift and uphold the demands of the ruling class. And that pride initially started because of police violence, because of police abuse, and that the continuation of pride, the push for queer liberation, has to also be steeped in defunding the police, in police accountability, so far as it is possible under a system like this, and, in my personal opinion, police abolition. And this is something that I think can sound a bit scary to folks, but there's been a lot written about this. Right now, I'm also thinking of the book Our Enemies in Blue by Christian Williams, where he does a great job of highlighting the history of the police, which again includes harassing and abusing queer folks, and talking about police abolition as a realistic aspect that would that would take us from a red thread from the abolition of slavery, so-called, because it's still technically legal in the United States in prisons, and because the police are descended in terms of their vocation from slave patrols, and therefore the push, the continued push for abolition in the United States would necessarily include the police and what that looks like and what that looks like in a place where, yes, of course, we want to make sure that people have recourse if they need to call someone to assist them in a violent situation. We're not suggesting that it's like the great purge that everyone's, you know, everyone for themselves, but that building a just and free society necessarily means dismantling the police as they exist in the United States today and what are some options around that? There are options that exist today already, for instance, in Rojava, uh, which is uh, Kurdish territory, places like northern Syria. There are so-called peace patrols. And, you know, the, the, there, there, are already, there are already ways of thinking about this and ways of manifesting safer communities where there are still ramifications for people acting in violent ways and and things like that but they don't include what we in the United States consider to be the police. And so I understand some listeners might be like whoa that's ridiculous. Uh but I I I would I would offer to kind of ruminate on this because I too felt very uncomfortable with that concept when I first heard it. And I think that also speaks to how we are sort of programmed to think of the police as something that has always existed in this country that will always need to exist. And we don't realize that we can build something without them. We can build something that makes us all safer. Just like, you know, ice has not existed for much of my life. Uh, ice, the they were created very recently and yet when the news talks about them right it's they talk about them like they they're they're an inborn american institution and so again kind of the censored angle here is to talk about these things as they are and understand that these things are just as fluid 
as you know nation states as borders as i mean gosh in our if you're listening to this and you've you were born after 1990 borders are very movable and fluid and so i think again it's important to highlight that that these things don't have to exist in the in the way that we that we think of them so yes pride needs to be considered in its radical roots and that includes not including the police and as i've stated and as our upcoming guest will also state that includes highlighting not just sort of mentioning but really highlighting the intersections of pride that queer liberation cannot exist without black liberation without indigenous liberation without latinx liberation without the liberation of women of femmes of everybody allies and accomplices this is liberation for all and that is all included in this conversation of queer liberation and we cannot as audrey lord pointed out we cannot tease out one aspect of ourselves and say that this is the one part of myself that needs liberation that doesn't it doesn't work that way and as simone de beauvoir pointed out my freedom is contingent upon yours. So we cannot will our own freedom without willing the freedom of others. And I think that pride is a beautiful time to highlight this again, because of all of the folks that are included in the queer community and because of all of the folks that are included in our allies and accomplices uh, that we need to stand with and push with for liberation for all. You're listening to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. This is Eleanor Goldfield. We'll continue our program after this brief musical break. Stay with us. If you were serious right now when you said that it's because they will be bullied in school, because that means you let the bully set the rules, and you can legislate and oppress, and you can make my life a mess, but you can't change the way I feel or convince me that a loser. You're tuned to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Eleanor Goldfield. We are very glad right now to be joined by Jen Deerenwater, bisexual, two-spirit, multiply disabled citizen of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, and an award-winning journalist and organizer who covers the myriad of issues her communities face with an intersectional lens. Jen is the founding executive director of Crushing Colonialism and a 2019 New Economies Reporting Project and 2020 Disabilities Future Fellow. Jen is a contributor to Truth Out, and her work has been featured in a wide range of publications, including Bitch, Rewire, News, and In These Times. Jen's writing is also included in anthologies, 
of which there are several. Jen is the co-editor of the anthology Sacred and Subversive and is currently hard at work on her own book. Jen has been interviewed for numerous outlets on her work and the advocate named Jen a 2019 champion of pride. While raised in rural areas of her nation's reservation in Oklahoma and in rural Texas, a nomad at heart, Jen currently lives in occupied Piscataway land known as Washington, D.C. Jen, thanks so much for joining the show. Yeah, it's great to be here. So I wanted to ask you on for a few different reasons, but I, I wanted to start with a recent, there've been a couple of articles recently that have just talked about the corporatization of pride and, you know, where everyone from weapons manufacturers to Walmart throw up rainbow regalia so as not to lose out on the purchasing power of queer folks. But I wanted to ask you, basically to put it bluntly, how does this come across to you? How does this come across to me? It's disingenuous at best. I don't even know what it is at worst. It's just awful. (laughs) Um, You know, I I remember a little over 20 years ago when I came out and I was living in Los Angeles. And I remember every June, you'd suddenly see billboards up showing like queer people and it'd always be liquor advertisements. It was like Smirnoff and Budweiser, Bud Light specifically that I recall. And I remember thinking, you know, why is it that we only matter one month out of the year and it's also to get us drunk? Like, really? And and I've just seen this go on and grow and grow to the point that, you know, you can be at a Capitol Pride Parade and you watch Lockheed Martin or Northrum Grumman, who are weapons manufacturers, go by with floats, literally with drones on them. Drones. I can't remember which one it was, but a few years back, one of them had a drone on their float. That's not pride. That's mass murder. That's genocide. And this is what I, as a queer person, am supposed to think of as as pride. You know, is this what our ancestors fought for? You know, hell no. They didn't. They didn't fight for this. You know, how dare you? Just how dare you? You're not here for us. And we can see that with the donations that these corporations make as well. You know, it's it's a game. It's making as much money and maintaining as much power as possible. And they'll do that any way they can. And so they they send out these disingenuous notions of, oh, we're here for pride. Come buy our stuff. And oh, yeah, by the way, we're going to give money to politicians who want to take away your rights as a queer person. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it it absolutely is. And I, yes, I believe disingenuous at best. And then a word we can't say on air at, uh, in reality at worst. Um, (laughs) but, but, and, and, and you kind of touched upon this, that, you know, pride really started as a riot in literally and figuratively in terms of the, the, uh, the energy and in terms of the literal actions, um, the push for justice and for human rights was spearheaded back then and continuously today, predominantly by uh, black and Latinx, queer, trans and femme folks. And I'm curious how you feel both personally and professionally that this clashes with the popular representation and celebration of pride today. Yeah. I mean, I'm not against celebrating who we are and having a good time. We absolutely should do that and have that, but not at the expense of all of our people. You know, when I look at, I'm just using Capital Pride as an example, since I live in DC and I've organized against Capital Pride, but you could see this at prides across the so-called US. You know, there's often 
a complete lack of inclusion of indigenous people of the lands, number one, there's never even an utterance of the term two-spirit. So as an indigenous queer person, that makes me incredibly angry. You don't get to have your pride on our stolen land. Like that's not okay. You know, it's really upsetting when pride parades require native people and native orgs to pay to take part in their parades. I, I hate to break it to you, but this is still our land. We should not have to pay to march in your stupid parade. Pride to me means nothing anymore. The month of June means nothing to me as a queer person. I almost never go to pride. I, I don't get anything out of it. You know, there are tons of cops there. That doesn't make me feel safe. That makes me feel less safe. In fact, you know, it just, um, it's fake. It's fake. You know, pride should not be just a party for our most privileged of queer community members. You know, your pride should not come at the expense of our lives. And when you allow weapon manufacturers in your pride parade, that sends a very clear message about which queers you think matter. You clearly are okay with mass murder. That's not pride in my opinion. You highlighted so many intersections uh, that are erased in the official pride celebrations. And I actually wanted to talk to you a little bit about that too, because, you know, pride is oftentimes highlighted in the U.S. as starting with Stonewall, which I think is even for, you know, people who aren't indigenous, that's not true. You know, the, the, the fight for queer liberation was <laughs> happening long before that. But I also wanted to talk about the queerness far before Stonewall and in, in fact, before the colonization of these lands. So how were identities regarded and treated before the advent of the United States? And how do you see colonialism as a continued attack on indigenous peoples who don't identify as straight or cisgender? Well, it goes back further than the, the creation of the United States. You know, it goes back to 1492. So some of our tribal nations had more than just two genders. Not all did, but many did. The Lakota, I believe, had seven genders at one point in time, according to Candy Brings Plenty. So, you know, I know the Navajo do, you know, there's quite a few nations that had multiple genders. And they weren't seen as less than. They were revered. They were important parts of communities. They were important parts of our families. It was considered a blessing to have a two-spirit person in your home. We were seen as being part of what completed our circle. We were seen as bringing the balance in between men and women. We were often used as negotiators within, you know, community disputes and with the, you know, different colonizers that we've had. We've taken orphan children. Some of our two spirits went to war. You know, we have various roles, like very specific roles as well, which is why we say, if you're not native, you cannot be two spirit. Doesn't mean you can't be non-binary, but you can't be two-spirit because that is a very specific role within tribal nations. But, you know, where this all really started to change was when the Spanish invaded. You know, they brought their white supremacy and their Christianity and they forced that on us. And over the years, those that were not outright murdered were just erased. They were forced to dress and behave within, you know, the white Christian gender binary, you know, and it's just gone on and gone on to the point that now our own straight cis native relatives are oppressing us. 
You can see it through like tribal government legislation. You can see it within community spaces. Unfortunately, my people, the Cherokee, are pretty anti-queer. Um, my tribe specifically, Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, tends to be much more politically conservative. We have a lot of Christian and right-wing tribal citizens. Not all, but we have a fair amount. Um, the anti-queerness is unbelievable. And not just in Oklahoma, like a, it's over 100,000 of us are considered at-large citizens. And so that means we don't live on our reservation. Um, and we have a satellite group here in the, in the D.C. area um, because our tribal nation started something called Cherokees at Large. And so we have a satellite community here. And I went to one of their events a few years back and the things that were being said that were blatantly anti-queer were horrendous. And I don't see my tribal government doing anything to address the needs of our queer citizens. I've tried talking to one of our at-large tribal uh, legislature, legislators, um, you know, and her response on anything I ask her about from disability to queerness is always, I don't know, it's fine, it's not a problem, or it's just all the Christians in Oklahoma, you know, so it started with the white invasion, but now our own relatives do this to us. And then within non-native queer community, we are erased as the people of this land. Our two-spirit identities are erased. You know, it's just being a minority within a minority within a minority and, and often feeling like no one loves you. No one cares. You could disappear tomorrow and your own people may not even care. And I don't want to say that all natives are like that because they're not, but far too many are now. And, and that is one of the impacts of colonization that we see and that I think hurts me the most. I expect, sadly, I expect non-Native people to erase us and use us, tokenize us, mistreat us. I've sadly come to expect it, but it's really painful when it's your own people turning their backs on you or committing violence against you. We've touched upon how pride is corporatized and basically devoid of any meaning. But I wanted to ask your suggestion for queer folks that want to celebrate and allies and accomplices, what do you think would be a radical way to celebrate pride? Uh, well, it's certainly not going to be in our pride parades and festivals, that's for sure. I mean, I would say, first of all, and, and this is a really big grand scale ask, but the parades need to be turned back into marches. That would also take away the need for all these corporate sponsors as well, because if it's a march, it's a First Amendment activity and you don't need expensive permits for that. Whereas a parade, you do need expensive permits. And so that's part of why we have had this corporatization of pride is to pay the high expenses just just in city fees and stuff. Um, so that's that's number one. I'd like to see them turn back into marches, not parades, um, but also host your own events. You don't need to mess with your local pride board and committee. Honestly, I would say don't waste your time. Host your own events. Do your own things. If that includes doing direct action, if that includes movie screenings, I mean, there's all kinds of things you can do. Back in, I believe, 2017, there was a large group of queer folks and accomplices that came together actually as a response to Capital Pride and how horrific it is. And we did something called No Justice, No Pride. And that included a lot of direct action, but it also included like a family-friendly march. 
Um, you know, we did a film screening with you. <laughs> you helped us. You know, we did all kinds of events and things. So, you know, there was that direct action, you know, the metaphorical throwing of bricks aspect to, to the pride that was um, organized, but it, it was also like, no, we can have fun. We can do things to celebrate and have a good time. So I think that's really the big thing I would say is start organizing your own stuff. Um, and also make sure your things are disability accessible and disability accessible means more than just following the Americans with Disabilities Act, which frankly is not a very good piece of legislation. Make your things accessible. Start bringing in disabled people and like people of all disabilities because one person's access needs are not the same as another. That's a big problem with pride is that disabled people aren't welcome either. And I'll just use this example real quick, but there's an event that just happened in New York City last weekend called Crip the Rainbow. And it was an entirely disability created event. It was by and for disabled queer people. And, you know, we need to see more of that from within our communities. And we need to see the funding and supports and the resources so that our communities can have those sorts of events and actions and really take back pride for ourselves and what it should be rather than this big corporate mess. Yeah, I, th I think that you know it, you you keep circling back to and highlighting the importance of intersections here. I want to also turn to another intersection that 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 touches on this that you discuss personally and professionally in an upcoming anthology called "We Organize to Change Everything: Fighting for Abortion Access and Reproductive Justice." That's available now from Verso Books. People can get it for free. Your access to abortion as a bisexual, two-spirit, indigenous, disabled person. Can you talk a little bit about these intersections and the, how they compound specifically in terms of access to reproductive health care? Yeah. So um, those of us that are considered American Indian and Alaskan Native, and I say considered because these are not our words for ourselves, but this is how data is collected on us. We actually have the highest rates of disability in the so-called U.S. per capita of any other ethnic or racial group. I believe it's 24% of our community has a disability. Frankly, I think that number is significantly higher. There are many people who actually are disabled who don't call themselves disabled, particularly in native community. Um, so I, I, I honestly think the numbers are probably much higher than that. So I, I talk about this in the book, but the Hyde Amendment, is a big part of keeping many of us from having access to abortion. So the Hyde Amendment says that federal funds cannot be spent on abortion except to save the life of the pregnant person or in cases of rape or incest. As you talked about on your last show, Indian Health Services has almost never provided abortions, <laughs> even within the strict guidelines of the Hyde Amendment. And for me, example, you know, I am on Medicare and I have Medicaid because I am disabled. Once again, Hyde Amendment rules apply to me. I can't get an abortion with my health insurance. You know, so I, I have three forms of health care that are supposed to be available to me. And yet I still cannot access an abortion. Even the most basic of reproductive health care is really hard to find. Um, which I discuss in the chapter I wrote in that book about how horrible of a time I had just trying to get my IUD replaced 
because the few gynecologists in DC who put in new IUDs, a lot of them don't take Medicaid. One of them didn't even take med- Medicare. So I, I guess we just don't deserve gynecological care, period. <laughs> it's very frustrating. And it's, it's very frustrating that I've never seen the pro-choice movement, including all the years that I spent in it. I never saw them advocate for disabled people. I've never seen any of the organizations work around making their, you know, like Planned Parenthood, for example, or other clinics. I've seen very little talk about making sure their facilities are accessible for disabled people who need abortion or other reproductive health care. We're just forgotten. I barely even see us talked about in the reproductive justice movement. And the same thing for natives, like outside of native community, no one really talks about our reproductive justice issues for the most part. And so there's just all these intersections. They're just forgotten. We're just thrown away, you know? And that really comes down a lot to who's in charge. You know, just because you're a pro-choice organization does not mean that you support me and mine. You know, if you're led by well-to-do, straight, cis, able-bodied white women, you're not here for me. And we see that in the pro-choice movement, all the years of all the ridiculous, worthless, liberal, radic rhetoric, you know, making abortions rare, but, you know, like as if abortion is a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. If someone needs one, they should be able to have it and not be shamed and be told it should be rare. I also feel like it's been used as a fundraising tool. How many times have the Democrats been in office, in control? of all three sectors of our federal government, and yet they've never codified Roe into law? Well, they didn't do it because one, they don't care. They don't care. They've never really cared. And two, it's a great way to get people to give them money. I look at these organizations like the Planned Parenthoods and the NARALs of the world, and I'm like, yeah, you keep your doors open through the threat of Roe being overturned. And it's, it's really sad. I spent years doing work in pro-choice spaces and I kept saying for years, and some of us said this for years as well, that Roe's going to fall. It's going to fall. And I remember people would act like I was ridiculous for that. You know, like I was just some raving mad person. And it's like, no, I knew what I was talking about. And here we are. It's just a matter of whose lives are important and, and who whose right to have children or not have children is important. And there's a lot of aspects of reproductive health care and justice that have just been forgotten by everyone, except the right who likes to control who does and does not get to have babies (laughs) and get to raise those babies as well. You're listening to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. This is Eleanor Goldfield. We'll continue our program after this brief musical break. And, and, and I've talked about this too, that the, you know, that's, it's, it's really about making sure that we vote for the Democrats. And one thing that, that I really thought was 
shocking in your essay was talking about, you know, the forced sterilization of disabled folks and how that's not discussed in the conversation about reproductive health care and reproductive justice and how, you know, and I've been part of the pro-choice movement for a long time as well. And I didn't know that about, you know, uh, about disability justice. And I didn't, and you're right, I, I didn't hear about disabled folks uh, needing reproductive health care. And it really, again, it, it shows the, uh, the, the extreme, uh, the extreme, well, bigotry is a nice word. Uh, I can't think of a word that I could actually say on air. The extreme, <laughs> the extreme beep of the U.S. empire and the U.S. system that basically doesn't just want to control bodies, but wants to ensure that this sort of very twisted white white supremacist able-bodied eugenics continues. Yeah, Buck v. Bell's the Supreme Court case that made sterilization of disabled people on a federal level legal. That still stands. I mean, disabled people are being sterilized against their will every day across this country, including our children. There are only three states that have total bans on the sterilization of disabled children. You know, it's not funny, haha, but maddening, haha. The Oklahoma representative that I write about in my chapter, who is from my hometown of Collinsville, Oklahoma, She's the co-sponsor for the total, pretty much a total ban on abortion in Oklahoma that took effect before Roe Falls this summer. She loves to claim that she's so pro-life and Oklahoma is such a pro-life state, yet disabled people are sterilized in Oklahoma legally, including our children. You know, when she was also asked in the, the House debates for the bill that ended up passing you know, do you believe that all these people who are going to be forced to have children now in Oklahoma, do you believe the state of Oklahoma has a duty to um, care for them and give them the, the money and the services they need? And her answer was, no, that's not the state's responsibility. She was also asked, and I, this is also in the chapter, she was also asked because the bill requires that the only way to get an abortion in the case of rape or incest is that you file a police report. So she was asked in House debates, you know, if an 11 or 12 year old was raped by her uncle, we know she's almost certainly not going to file a police report. So under your bill, that means she can't get an abortion. Are you OK with that? And she said, yes, I am. You know, so these, quote, pro-life people, I mean, we've always known this. It's always been there. It's always been blatant. People just didn't pay attention, but they don't care about life. They don't care about children. It's so clear and it's just unfortunate that it's just now some people are listening or waking up. But even then, I don't feel like they're really listening. I, I don't see it. And I don't see the kind of widespread uprising that I would like to be seeing right now. Instead, I see a lot of the same tired rhetoric, the same sort of signs, stupid, meaningless rallies in front of the Supreme Court, which... I mean, you think standing in front of the Supreme Court with a sign is going to change their mind? It's not going to change their mind, you know, and I, I understand the needs for mass action and things like that to bring people together. But also, you know, it's it's just kind of pointless. Like if we have to take matters in our own hands, begging the oppressor for crumbs is never going to work. And I am very frustrated 
at the lack of real revolution that I'm seeing. I feel like we've reached this point for a lot of reasons and there's a lot of blame to go around. And a lot of that comes out of the reality of having white, straight, cis, able-bodied, well-to-do women making the decisions on abortion and reproductive health care access for all of us. That is the problem. Also, something that I wanted to mention is the, the backlash by the misogynists out there in the way they're using our civil courts to keep, you know, women and femmes quiet, whether it's about abuse or possibly this, you know, the editor for this anthology had actually asked me when I talked about my ex-partner in my particular abortion, you know, she asked me like, are you sure you want to include this? He could sue you or he might sue you. And I said, well, only two people know who he is. You know, this is not an issue. Like he's not going to be known unless he does sue me. Also, I have no money. So it'd just be stupid and pointless to sue me. But that's the reality. And after this Johnny Depp and Amber Heard case, it's even more terrifying. So it just the ways in which we're being silenced, they just are numerous and they keep growing, but they're not going to stop if we don't fight back. Real change, real revolution. It's not going to come from writing letters to Congress. It's not going to come from standing outside of the Supreme Court. It's going to take some real change real change, like tearing down of empires change. And this is coming from someone who worked on democratic campaigns. So this is not, (laughs) (laughs) I I credit the democratic party for turning me into a hardcore radical leftist. (laughs) Well, you know, this is the first time that I can think of a reason to thank the Democrats. (laughs) Thank you for bringing us radical Jen. Yeah, I mean, I was pretty invested in the system at one point. You know, I wasn't, I was still more radical minded, but I had this mindset of, well, this is what we're stuck with. You know, I've got the privilege of a higher education. I need to go be in this system and try to reform from within. And after 10 years, I went, no, there's no reforming from within. It works exactly as it's intended to. And the Democrats are not my friend any more than the Republicans are. I got called a squaw and an engine and sexually harassed and heard and saw all kinds of despicable things being done by some of even the furthest left Democrats in Massachusetts, which, you know, supposedly this very liberal state. So, yeah, (laughs) real change. And it's not going to come through our parties and the government. That's not how real change is going to happen. You got to fight back people. And I do mean fight. Very well put. Uh, Well, Jen, tell folks where they can find your work and follow what you do. Yeah. So you can find me on all the social media outlets. Um, it's at Jen Deer and Water. I also have a website, jdeerandwater.com. Uh, you can follow my work as well with organ- my organization, Crushing Colonialism. We're an indigenous media org. Uh, so we're at crushingcolonialism.org. And also go get this free ebook from Verso Books. It's versobooks.com. Totally free. It's amazing. There's lots of great pieces in there, not just on abortion and access in the U.S., but across like other countries. There's incredible pieces in there. And Verso has other free ebooks that come out all the time. So you should just uh, keep an eye on them. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining Project Censored. Yeah, thank you for having me on. We will 
that does it for another episode of the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Eleanor Goldfield. For this episode, I've also been your associate producer, and Anthony Fest is our senior producer. Project Censored Radio airs on roughly 50 stations across the U.S., from Maui to New York. And you can find all our previous archived programs by going to projectcensored.org. Please follow and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram just before we get deplatformed. And be sure to subscribe to the official Project Censored show on your digital tethering devices podcast application. Please feel free to contact us, share your feedback, or learn more about our work at projectcensored.org and see our new publishing imprint, The Censored Press, at censoredpress.org. To learn more about my work or to contact me specifically, please visit my website at artkillingapathy.com. You can also follow me on social media at Radical Eleanor. Last but not least, thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Habitualized alibis, skies and other guys of democracy, politics, and the apocalypse. Got the skies like an ominous. So the ocean burned bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars fall for little poison. The weapons manufactured pay for our attacks on all the bridges and the levees and the mines collapsing. All the prisons build the capacity citizens. And the times for the master thief. Combine and conquer, steal a masterpiece. Open your eyes and realize what's happening. Times running out the reach on potential fame at the table, then you're probably on the menu.